we got this one on yet? There we go. All right. Uh, good morning. Uh, go Ravens and uh, condolences to the Colts fans in the room. Boy, it was hard to watch them lose, wasn't it? So uh, we have the privilege of having with us this morning uh, Rabbi Ron Schulman. Ron is the senior rabbi at Chiskamuna. Really, I'm not that yeah, old. No. <laughs> uh, I, uh, before I was in ministry, I was uh, at Black and Decker. I was the senior secretary in the tax department at the age of like 22. <laughs> I said they should just call me senior secretary. I was also the only male secretary in the. Ta- I, I got one of those little fans on my desk just to fit there in. Ron, uh, Ron is a senior rabbi at uh, Chizik Amuna Congregation on Stevenson, which is one of the megagogs uh, by the Beltway. And uh, Bethel is, that's pretty easy. Bethel is House of God. Yeah, right. Beth Israel, House of Israel. Chizik Amuna, maybe not, not yeah. so easy. What, what yeah, does Chizik Amuna mean? It's a hard one mean? to pronounce, let alone understand. Uh, right, right, yeah. Absolutely. It means strength in faith. Strength in the, faith. The word, the, word, the Hebrew um, emunah is faith, and it's being pronounced in a variant form, amuna, but it, uh, uh, the word amen, the word amen derives from the Hebrew word emunah, which is faith, and chizuk is, is, um, is a word for strength, and so it's a community that sought to strengthen its faith and the faith of its community. Great. That's, that's and it would be easier if, name, it, yeah. if it was in English. It would, it be, would easier be easier if it were in English, English. yes, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I guess that's, you know, that's, you know, you, you, I, they you named keep it in the, 1871, the so I don't yeah. get to change it. Right. Well, and that is, and, and so in Hezekamuna is, a, is a, uh, a show with a, with a long heritage here in town. Yeah, this is our 140th anniversary. It's the second congregation founded in the Jewish community of Baltimore. The first was Baltimore Hebrew Congregation was founded downtown on Lloyd Street in 1854. I don't know if this happens in the church world, but in the synagogue world, when you don't like something going on, you create a new one. So, so come, come around 1871, the folks at Chizuk Amuna thought that Baltimore Hebrew was becoming too liberal in its liturgical practice, and they said, we're going to do it our way, and they created this strengthening faith congregation, and off we've been ever since. And, and, and basically a block away, right? Uh, they moved down a block, yes, yeah. and started a new building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you go down today on, on Lloyd Street uh, downtown, there's something called the Jewish Museum of Maryland, and that's actually our original home, and our original synagogue has been restored and is in use down there, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that never ever happens. In no, I'm sure, it's uni- I'm sure it's unique. I'm sure it's unique. There, there's, there's, an, there's an old joke about a, a man d- d- deserted on, a, on an island, and they finally come to rescue him, and they notice uh, two synagogues. And they say, oh, my God, all this time you created all that. But why did you build two synagogues? He says, well, that's the one I go to, and that's the one I would never step foot in. <laughs> So, uh, Ron, uh, how, how uh, does a nice Jewish boy like yourself end up in a place like uh, Chizikamun as a senior rabbi? Oh, my children keep asking me that all the time. Um, I, was, uh, I entered the rabbinate in 1983. I had a congregation in Southern California, which is my hometown. Uh, and I was out in that area for 21 years or so, uh, doing what I was doing as a rabbi and teaching at a university in Los Angeles, which is today known as the American Jewish University. Um, rabbi Joel Zaman was the rabbi here in Pikesville of Chizikamuna, was a very prominent uh, rabbi and very involved in interfaith relationships, among other things. He and Cardinal Keeler were very, well, still are very close uh, companions and friends. And when he announced his retirement, uh, Chizikamuna went on a search, and I have no idea 
why they knocked on my door, but they came and knocking, and it was a unique opportunity which uh, I took. Yeah, and and uh, uh, preparation for uh, for the rabbinate uh, involves uh, seminary, right? Of course, and then yeah, and you, some, you, uh, after your undergraduate college, whatever that may be, whatever your interests are, then you do, in our particular denomination, you do five years of seminary. And, and at least one of those is in Israel? One of those years of seminary is in Israel. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why when we were over in Israel, we were always asking these guys to do the translations <laughs> and so forth. Ron, uh, Ron was on the trip that we just uh, went on in November with the, uh, the Maryland Clergy Initiative trip. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jason yeah. behaved very well most of the time. <laughs> Most of you know, I have you know, most of the time. Right. Of the time. Right. I think about as well as could have been expected, <laughs> given the company. Um, so, uh, so our our Torah portion this morning uh, is Parshat Bo, uh, which uh, it, you having now been in the rabbinate for uh, twenty some years, you've yeah, had the chance to preach. I've, I've, more I've, than, I've, I've read the story once or twice. More than yeah. you know, I, I, I was I was talking this week. Uh, I was having a beer with a friend of mine who's another minister, and and uh, talking the, about uh, our process of going through the the Torah according to the the synagogue calendar. And he said, you know, man, we, you know, Christmas and Easter roll around every year, and we're like, gosh, what am I going to do with this this year? I can't imagine hitting the same text year after year after year. So what 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 is and, that? And like? I can't imagine not. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that, that's, all, that's all your orientation. Tell me just for a moment, and then yeah. I'll be glad to answer the question. What is your interest in following our liturgical calendar of the weekly portions? Mostly uh, I mean, that, I think it's wonderful. I'm yeah. curious what you're seeking to, to you know, discover. In uh, it, really, it's a way of saving work for me. Somebody else already set giving the away our secrets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, we... Um, you know, for, for one thing, uh, w one of the things that we try to do is, is, is generally at New Hope, we try to go through books of the Bible as literary holes okay. rather than, you know, occasionally we'll do a topical series or we'll look uh, at, uh, at, a, at a particular um, theme. And so we've often at, at, uh, at Advent, for example, we'll look at messianic prophecies in a given book or in right. a given portion of, of a book. So right. last time it was in the, the first portion of Isaiah, we looked at messianic prophecies, for example. But, but generally speaking, we do a book of the Bible at a time, and we tend to take our time doing it. Okay. Um, so uh, what? But we, we, it, was, it was only 43 weeks. Nobody it just felt like 14 weeks. Ezekiel didn't yeah. do 14 months of Ezekiel. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and what we also try to do is, is, is rotate among the, the main uh, genres of Scripture, which for us involve uh, not just Tanakh in the Old Testament, but uh, the Gospels and the Epistles as well. And so um, we, had, uh, we had just done the Gospel of John. Before that, we did Second Corinthians. Uh, and uh, I saw this as an opportunity not only for us to, uh, to study the Bible and to preach on that, which is what we do here after all on Sunday morning, but also to um, to do so in a way that was uh, that was systematic, that was going to be uh, covering a good bit of ground without doing it too quickly. We did a, a an Old Testament overview several years ago. In the course of about eight months, we did the whole thing, which just seemed like you know forty thousand feet. <laughs> um, and uh, and the other thing is that right after this, we're going to go into the Book of Romans uh, and. As I read the Book of Romans, not to give too much away, um, I, I think I think the the question that bothers Paul, the, the the question that he's really trying to work out through that book is, 
in light of all that has happened in and through the person of Jesus, what sense do I make of Torah in light of that? And Paul being a Torah-observant Jew, having been raised uh, uh, as a disciple of Gamaliel, a, a young young rabbi in a hurry, um, clearly this is something that, that, uh, that he, he was wrestling with in a very profound way. And I figure what, what better way to prepare us for that than to spend a year doing it. So let me give you a little bit of context, and then we can explore some of the text if you want. Um, we take the five books of Moses, the first portion of the, of the Old Testament, which we call the Torah. We take those five books, and they are divided by, in Jewish tradition into 54 weekly portions. If you're curious about 54, we can come back to that. Nevertheless, they're divided into 54 weekly portions, and they are read in an annual cycle, so that we are reading every year the same portions in the same order. We start at Genesis, we work through through Deuteronomy, and we start all over again. We have a big holiday at the end of Deuteronomy in order to celebrate that we finished again, and then we start all over again at Genesis and roll through. And if you've been to a synagogue service, you've seen that it's literally on a scroll, and we are literally rolling through it. And when we get to the end of the scroll, we roll back and, and start again. So in a given, you, you asked, you know, uh, the same material time after time after time. So, so there's a couple of things that are of note. The first of which is, so, so this is the book, if you sat in our synagogue, this is the book you would be reading from while we read from the scroll of the Torah. And you would be following in the English translation or the Hebrew text, depending on your language skills, as it, was, it would be, be chanted in the Hebrew. You might follow along in the translation. I or someone else would be teaching something about it, preaching something from it, etc. There would be other commentary and notes. If you were curious about a given word or image or, or, or theme in the text, you could do your own exploration for a few moments as long as you were letting me finish what I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> So, 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 but, but in these chapters that are this week's portion, so uh, this portion entitled Bo, which means come unto the Pharaoh, or, um, um, I mean, it's an interesting word actually, Bo means come, but it's God's instruction to Moses to go to the Pharaoh. So if you read the translation here, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. But if I read the Hebrew, Vayomer Adonai, the Lord said, El Moshe to Moses, Bo El Paro, come into the Pharaoh. So we could spend hours right there. What's the assignment to go? And how do you have to come into yourself? How do you have to come into an understanding of the mission? How do you have to come into an understanding of what it will be to go before this monarch, this leader, this, this, this oppressing uh, person in terms of your people? What does it mean to go to him when, when the instruction to you was more literally, come, come into some relationship, come into some scene, come into some moment, come into some faith, come into what in order to go and carry out this assignment? Right, so even right there, I mean, I, I, how many sermons could I give on that? Right. Right? I mean, we could talk about any one word. So when you think about the fact that I'm going from the 10th chapter of the book of Exodus to the 13th chapter of the book of Exodus, in which I will read the 8th plague, the 9th plague, and the 10th plague, the plague of the locusts, the plague of darkness, and the tragic plague of the killing of the firstborn of Egypt. And then I will read in chapter 12 what is ultimately probably by, by most accounts the most important chapter in the whole of the Bible. Because that's the chapter of the Exodus. That's the chapter that creates the opportunity of the people to march into their freedom and to take now responsibility for their faith and to begin the journey that is the journey of the children of Israel, which then becomes the journey of all faiths that derive from that. Though that's not a small chapter. No. 
Okay, so the opportunity to come back to these things annually is the opportunity to always be able to explore some element of it. I can't explore all of it in any given week, okay, and to always find myself anew in the story because what interested me last year may not at all be on my mind as I look at the world, as I look at my life, as I look at my family, as I look at community, as I think about my issues of faith. That may not at all be on my mind this year. So the opportunity to revisit the text is actually a gift every year to see myself always anew in it. And again, from the faith perspective of the Jewish community, of the Jewish people, this is truly our story. And so part of the goal and the purpose of reading the story is to read ourselves into the story. And that's a lifelong endeavor, to always be able to read myself into the meanings of faith and into the purposes of freedom and into the goals of justice and all that this text is ultimately about trying to create in the world. I have to constantly read myself into that story. So when you, when you did the teaching on this yesterday, what, which part did you... Uh... Did you address? So yesterday we actually emphasized two different parts of the text. I have an associate, Rabbi Deborah Wexler, uh, who yesterday uh, preached the sermon. In her uh, preaching, she actually looked at the plague of the locusts and wanted to think with the congregation about what happens when we hurt and what she saw in the verses there about how that plague was hurtful to the community, hurtful to the society, and what, is it, what was it to come through that hurt and to hope for some greater redemption, only then to discover what? The ninth plague, which is darkness. So here they are thinking they're coming through some hurt, but they didn't react properly, they didn't resolve the problem, and things got only worse. So she preached along those lines. I looked in a Torah study, in a Bible study we read the text. The preaching comes later in the morning. Um, come, come with great um, patience if you come to our worship service. We go three hours on a Saturday morning from roughly nine to noon. Um, so the preaching comes at like the 11.15 part. Three hours. Of time. Three hours. Wow. Three hours. Three hours, yes. Are, are, your, uh, are your pews more comfortable than these? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you know he's good if he's got people staying awake for three hours and comfortable. Well, I don't know if you've had the experience of ever attending a synagogue service, but in the traditional communities, and ours is a relatively traditional congregation, people tend to trickle in. So I started yesterday. We actually started at that 9. never 15. happens. No, never church. happens. I started yesterday at 9. We're a large congregation, and we have large attendance in, in, in synagogue, so, you know, the numbers are... are but descriptive. Um, so if I started with 50 people at 9.15, at noon I had 400, 500 people in the room, and they just trickle in through the course of the morning. They know the sermon will come at whatever time after 11 o'clock, so they're there for that. But before we read the text, I always teach something. So what I taught yesterday was the following. It's the beginning of chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring but one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After that he shall let you go from here indeed. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here one and all. So this is God's instruction to Moses that the tenth plague is coming. And that tenth plague, this terrible plague of the striking of the firstborn of Egypt, this is an ominous moment. This is a moment nobody walks into with any sense of lightness. And so there's a lot of preparation that has to come into this moment. But there's also preparation because this is really it. And after this plague, you are going free, whether you believe me or not, you are going free, so I'd best give you a lot of preparation instruction up front, because once this happens, we're on live. This is harsh. And a good bit of loot, too. <laughs> well, so that's the interesting thing. <clears throat> 
So in verse 2, tell the people, God says to Moses in giving Moses instructions, tell the people to borrow, it's a polite word, each man from his neighbor and each woman from hers objects of silver and gold. Now, if you think about this, this is fascinating. First of all, why do they need it? And second of all, why would the Egyptians, who if they think anything of these Hebrew slaves, see them as slaves, see them as less than equal or worthy in their society, and that's only been made worse by the fact that there have been nine plagues, which have not exactly been comfortable for the Egyptians themselves to endure. So all of a sudden, what is God thinking? That they're going to knock on the door and in Hebrew slave here is going to say to Egyptian homeowner here, could I have your silver and gold? Oh, sure, take it with you, of course. I mean, so, so what is that? And what do they need it for? I mean, I, really, what are they going to do with all this stuff? If you know the story, as I trust you do, know the basic contours of the story, when they leave, it's pretty quick. And we're told that they have to bake this uh, unleavened bread stuff pretty quick. And they're in a hurry pretty quick. Get up and go. So what are they going to take along? I'll use our Jewish word. They're going to schlep along all of this gold and silver. How's that? So you have to know one thing about the context, and then we have to look at the text. So the thing you have to know about the context is it's often misunderstood that when the children of Israel wander 40 years in the wilderness, that you have this picture of this big open desert, and all these people just hiking and camping. But that's not what they're doing at all. They are entering into a very sophisticated wilderness society and economy. And if you read what comes in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you see them interacting with all sorts of neighbors and folks. Sometimes these are good interactions. Sometimes these are difficult interactions. But they need resources. They have to barter in the market. They have to ultimately create the vessels of the tabernacle which they're told to create. Okay, there's the sin that comes along. Where did the stuff for the golden calf come from? They didn't just dig up from the rocks, right? So, so for this image we have of these people wandering through the desert, and there they are just desolate and alone and dependent solely on God for their providence and their journey, well, that's actually not what's happening. They're actually entering into a wilderness economy and they have nothing They have not been paid to be slaves. They have nothing. And so the spoils of Egypt are something that God deems appropriate for them to take with them. So you have to have that context. But then you say to yourself, again, so why would the Egyptians give it to them? So then you read the next verse, verse 3. The Lord disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. Well, that's helpful information. Okay, this is part of what is the miracle of redemption, that the Lord disposes the Egyptians favorably to these Hebrew slaves. Why? Moreover, Moses himself was much esteemed in the land of Egypt among the Pharaoh's courtiers and among the people. I asked my congregation yesterday in studying these few verses to think about that. Think about that. You can put that in the context. You had a beautiful and sad prayer this morning to remember and think about the folks in Arizona. Think about that for a minute. Moses is, to the average Egyptian, if we can imagine such a thing, Moses is a prince of God who has not done well by the Egyptians. I mean, these have been difficult experiences. And yet they respect him. They, they are motivated by their admiration for him to help his people. 
So what is it about being somebody who can stand on his principles, who understands that the redemption that is coming is a redemption for goodness, is a redemption for decency, is a redemption for human equality, who can actually know this about the task at hand and live it and exude that, and the neighborhoods can see that of this leader, even though when he has to go into the Pharaoh, he has to make some pretty difficult demands, and then is the voice, he doesn't bring the plagues himself, but is the voice of the plagues as God enacts these plagues. It's a very powerful narrative. I reminded everyone of a very famous quote by Abraham Lincoln, which Lincoln looked at, at his advisors at one point as, as they're dealing with the difficulties of war and everything that Lincoln dealt with. And Lincoln said, do I not defeat my enemy by making him my friend? I mean, what is redemption? What is the ultimate character of soul and being? So we explored that yesterday um, before we actually then opened and read the verses. Great. Well, I, wanna, I don't want to be uh, greedy here. I want to give you all a chance to ask uh, Rabbi Shulman a, a question or two uh, before we uh, uh, close. Uh, so throw your hand up if you would like to... Uh, if you would like to do that, I, I, I warn them that uh, that uh, you know you, we evangelicals have this reputation as Bible people, so I expected at least a couple of us to actually read the text before we started. You know? Tell me what we're looking at. Twelve thirty-three. Twelve thirty-three. Okay. Right. And it also throws the word clothing in there. Right. First, that's one of the things I wondered is why was clothing mentioned then and it wasn't mentioned before? Good. And then also, um, it seems to have a, a direct contradiction to what was in verse 33 um, that they said uh, that they ate from their departure from the land and oh, we're all going to be dead. It's like one verse they're saying, you guys got to get the heck out of here because we're going to be dead if you stick around any longer. And then, but we, we love it. The context here is really fascinating. There's an impression, maybe it's yours, maybe you're more sophisticated in knowing the text than some other folks who might teach this too. There's an impression that the tenth plague comes and we have to rush and off we go. And they didn't have time to prepare any food, and uh, they have to just go. Okay? But if you go back to the beginning of chapter 12, which is, as I indicated, really one of the pivotal chapters in all of the Torah for the Jewish people. God says, on the first day of the month, you have two weeks. Two weeks from tonight, this terrible plague will be enacted and you will go free. In the course of the next two weeks, here are the things I need you to do. Now, I don't know how early you pack for any trip you may be going on. Okay, so I would understand human nature to be such that maybe they didn't start really packing up two weeks in advance. And I would also understand from the religious perspective, maybe they don't really think this is going to happen. There have been nine previous plagues. And after each plague, they had hoped they would go free, and they didn't. So, okay, you know, you're going free in two weeks. Maybe I get that there's some doubt. Nevertheless, very clear instructions are given. 
prepare this, prepare that, have the lamb ready for the blood, for the offering on the door, for the passing over scene. It's all laid out for, for two weeks, including prepare your wardrobe because you will have your loins girded, says the text in English. Okay, You're going to have to have what to, what, what to have. So, no, there is no other reference in the text beyond this verse clothing like there is to the silver and the gold, but there's this larger context of understanding, be prepared, you have a little bit, so it's time to figure out what. Now, why, why, again, other than what we saw about Moses and about God helping the Egyptians to help the Hebrew slaves, why would they be uh, predispossessed to this? why, Why would they think this is true? What we understand about the biblical experience and about what's happening in Egypt is there seems to be a large number of Egyptians who want out with the Israelites. In other words, every society has folks who maybe acquiesce to something wrong that the government is doing, and every society has folks who stand against that which a government of whatever type is doing that they see is wrong. There's a large group of what the Hebrew Bible calls the Erev Rav, the large group of masses, who clearly want out with Israel. And so there's reason to assume that in neighborhoods where people know each other and are living together and are basically human beings with each other, that there's a compassion and a sympathy and also a desire to, quote-unquote, hitch a ride. So there's some larger sense of relationship that, that is, I think, happening here. Well, it also says in 33 that they wrapped the, the kneading troughs in their clothes right. that they had, too, so they may have... Right, uh, right, right, and that's how they know, packed it all yeah. up and are ready to carry right. it out. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, other, other questions? Yes, BJ. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. First of all, because I love this verse, and I'll explain why. And, and second of all, because now I'm going to really confuse you. But it's fun. I like confusion. Religious confusion is a good thing, I think. I'm not the only one. <laughs> okay. So the verse is, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This is chapter 12, verse 1. This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Okay. So again, what's the scene here? Right? They've now been told, okay, here it is, new month. Two weeks from now, you're going forward. By the way, if that's the beginning of the month, why two weeks? The Hebrew month is calculated by the moon. It's exactly like the zodiac. Okay, so a new moon is a dark sky. You're not going to take a journey with hundreds of thousands of people on a dark sky. You're going to wait for the 15th of the month when you have a full moon. And that's when you're going to go. That's when all Jewish holidays are celebrated. Passover is celebrated on the full moon which is the 15th day of that Hebrew month when we mark the Passover holiday every year. So, so you have the new moon. So first thing that God says is this will be the month that marks for you the beginning of time. Why? Because this will be when you go free. This is your beginning. Prior to now, you've had no say over how you use your time. You've had no say over what time means. And you've had no opportunity to define the quality or the character of your life. And we do that because we live in time. Every sovereign culture, every sovereign ruler, every society establishes its calendar because calendar is ultimately how we interpret the meaning of our days. 
And therefore the seasons and the festivals and our birthdays, whatever other occasions we mark. So note that it says, this will be the first month of the year for you. Yours now is, the understanding is yours now is the responsibility to mark time, to be responsible for your usage of the time, and to do now with your freedom something significant. You no longer will be serving a taskmaster. So that's a very powerful license of it's time to go free. Passover represents, this month represents, the first month of the Hebrew calendar. When the Jewish New Year in the fall rolls around, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, that's actually the seventh month of the biblical calendar. But it is the month on which we change our our year. This is now the Jewish year 5,771. We mark that annual cycle in the fall, but we mark the biblical calendar of months starting with the Passover. So if you're confused, so are all my mom, all of my congregants. But that, that's how it works. Right. Uh, Tim, I think I can anticipate your question. On the cover, that is a picture uh, from the webcam of Sinai as the Israelites were leaving uh, Egypt. Yeah, I thought it was impressive. You had the original footage. It's yeah, really well, remarkable. You know, right. we, we spare no expense. Uh, Tim, what, what, uh, do you have another question? No doubt in my mind that that's a piece of it. And you see that in some of the scenes where Pharaoh's courtiers come to him and they say, what are you being so stubborn for? Enough already. Just get this out of here. Let's move on with our agenda. Get this out of here. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a very fair way to understand that. Although it's interesting that the the text does go to, to that distance to at least say that Moses was respected. But I think you're absolutely right. This has been the source of great difficulty. That's what it costs to get rid of this. Have some silver. Uh, Mary. I'm listening. No, I understand. Right, right, right. When we're reading the Hebrew Bible, we are reading the record of the memory of what took place. We are not reading the actual transcription of what took place. Okay? In the end of the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are instructions to Moses from God to write this all down. And then, of course, there's the famous scene of Moses in Exodus 20 ascending to Mount Sinai, where, again, within the story's narrative, God hands it to Moses. Here it is, you know, I I took the liberty of writing it all down for you, so, so you have it all. So there's no sense that in the moment 
people are reading something or have any text in front of them, nor does this group of people really have any understanding of God at this time, other than the memory of what would have been an ancestral memory of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Genesis stories, which at some level, if they took place in some kind of a chronological order, would have been in some kind of cultural memory. But there's no literal text that they are looking at at any point in time. And, and from a historical point of view, it's actually true that it's not until the year 1000, in the, in the, before the Common Era or BC, um, in the reign of King David on Jerusalem, it's really not till then that these texts are fully pulled together in an organized form the way you and I see them. So it's hard to know what the ancients were themselves actually looking at as, as, as scripture. Well, in the form we have, uh, a Torah in the form we have it today probably dates to the captivity, right? Yeah, 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 and the organization of it as I'm referring to it with weekly portions and some of the other internal technicalities that we have in it is actually 12th century, for, it's what we call the Masoretic text. Right. Right. And then we, of course, literacy is a common phenomenon. It's right. not right. something that, that uh, right. you know, right. for most of the history of all of our people, I mean... Right, and, and all of these stories begin as oral tales to begin with which is in part why sometimes they're fanciful and in other times they're um, inconsistent because the memory and the embellishment is such as it's told from generation to generation is going to not always be accurate. You're going you're to go home today and recite something you heard here today and you're going to say it in your way, which may not exactly have been how I said it, but our intent is the same. Is there uh, one more question? Yes, Darcy. Does it exclude them from the journey, or does it exclude them from eating? <laughs> okay, so, so, so first the narrow answer, what's the text telling us, and then a broader answer in my, in my own view of that. Okay, what the text is telling us is that you are now being made into a distinctive people. And this is a theme within the Jewish memory that is both compelling and important for how we understand ourselves and also challenging in terms of how we have to interact with and see ourselves in a larger world. And that's clearly one of the interesting issues within Jewish communal and religious life. But there's clearly here being created a distinctive identity. You are the descendants of those with whom I've made a covenant from Abraham down through to Jacob and now through to Moses and ultimately with your descendants. And your boundary as a people, as a group, is going to be demarked. So others are coming along, but the particular paschal lamb that is offered and the blood is placed onto the door, that symbol of the freedom of this particular people whom I'm bringing free because I promised Abraham in Genesis 15 I would be bringing free, only you who are of this people will eat of that ritual lamb. 
You can have the rest of dinner and all of the other trimmings, whatever's going on there. But the, 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 the slaughtered lamb, the ritual, the sacrifice to God is, is for the members of the covenanted community as this book would define and understand those parameters. Okay? In Jewish life today, and in Jewish life since the first century, in Jewish life really since the Christian story comes into being and significance, um, we are not uh, what I would call biblical Jews. We are what we would call rabbinic Jews. Ours is a tradition of, of tremendous interpretation. And there is much in this text that we see as first word, but not current word. And through the traditions of our interpretive texts and lore and our sages and all the things that are the complicated culture and beauty, actually, of Jewish tradition, absolutely, uh, um, folks who are not members of the Jewish community are welcome at our Seder tables, partake in the rituals. We don't eat a Paschal lamb now anyway. That's not a ritual we practice. None of the sacrifices of the ancient text are relevant in any way other than thinking about them in terms of how we worship or celebrate. So, so what this text says reflects a time and a place and the beginning of a of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an identity, but how that is now interpreted and evolved over time, you know, takes on many, many different manifestations, including something you alluded to, which is we have different denominational understandings of the whole thing. You said your friends are, are Reformed Jews. I represent the conservative movement. There's the Orthodox. Yeah, you know, so, so in our own community, I don't know, does this happen in the Christian faith community? You know, there, there, there are different you know, streams of interpretation and understanding what's going on here. So, 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 so that would be the, the way to, to understand that. So then you asked me about my view of, of church seders. So what I think is wonderful about that is, and, and if I don't say this elegantly, fix it for me, what I think is wonderful about that is reclaiming the story in terms of who Jesus was as he was living. Because Jesus celebrated a Passover Seder. There's, I mean, you know. And, and, and Jesus knew this the same way I'm trying to read myself into this story. That was Jesus' upbringing. His challenge, and some of what animated him later on, was to how he read himself into the story or how he couldn't read himself into the story and therefore perhaps taught different visions or interpretations. That's his strength. Okay, so I think it's wonderful that if the purpose of the Seder is to claim, I want to understand something of these roots, because these bring me closer to them, the story I see my faith narrative in, I think that's a very powerful and a lovely thing. What I don't think is proper, personal view, is taking the symbols of the Seder and making them mean things that they don't inherently mean. So that suddenly the matzah, which represents very clearly the food that these folks ate, and there's a whole moral purpose to the eating of that food when we observe it, that's all it represents. And anything else anybody claims it represents is not true to the spirit of the Seder Jesus sat at. But okay, that's for all of you to have fun with, not me. And, and where does the gefilte fish come in? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's, called, that's called Eastern European acquired tastes. Yes. <laughs> Well, uh, Ron, thank you so much uh, for being pleasure. with us this morning. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. The delight is mine. Thank you for the invitation. Thank right. you for the opportunity. You're a lovely group. Right. Thanks. Thanks.